This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Be sure to leave a rating and review of this series wherever you get your podcasts, and then go explore images, stories, and past episodes on artuk.org. Many of us are fantasizing about setting off to explore any place other than the inside of our homes these days. So let's take an imaginary journey via the beauty of 20th century British railway posters. These iconic illustrative posters were commissioned by railway companies to tempt travelers to explore the country. And several of the paintings for these posters are now held in public art collections. Railway posters started in the 19th century But back then, they were basically sort of letterpress posters. So no images, just text, often in a sort of rather random jumble of fonts. And it wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century that you start to see the first colour images being used on travel posters. That's David Bounds, who runs the site 20th Century Posters. So why do we see more images on posters from the 20th century onwards? Well, the technology became a lot cheaper. So it was able in the 1900s to start to put little vignettes, little scenes that you could see on your travels. But these early posters from the 1900s are not visually very attractive from a modern day perspective. They still use an awful lot of text and they had a mishmash of scenes of things that you could do and see. And this is because ideas about design that we might have today just didn't really exist back then. And there weren't professional poster designers. These posters advertised for various railway companies and the destinations they served. But there were other objectives that we can still see on railway advertisements today. It was really about encouraging what we would call off-peak travel. The railways had a real problem with getting people to use the trains outside sort of commuter times. So it's about creating a sense of the day trip at the weekends or a bank holiday trip to the seaside. So it's very much about holiday traffic and buying those tickets. And they didn't quite know what they were doing. So they'd they'd put a lot of information about prices and a lot of pictures about what you could see. They would pretty much only be at railway stations. As railway companies got better at, at marketing, they used to do special stunts where they'd have railway posters attached to vehicles, or on special hoardings that were um, pulled by horses, but mainly they were at railway stations. That's where you'd see these posters. It seems that the posters were effective. Workers gained the legal right to holiday leave in 1939, and this development in combination with railway advertising helped drive the increase in the number of people taking day trips. There were several railway lines servicing destinations around the country, so in order to manage the needs of these different areas, railway companies would often work together with seaside destinations to commission their poster artists. It was a very random business back then, before the First World War. Railway companies were just starting to have publicity departments, but it was very much the realm of the gentleman amateur. There wasn't a lot of science to it. There certainly wasn't a lot of uh, sort of audience research. But the big railway companies that had the budgets, they were employing these artists who could earn quite a lot uh, for a poster design, £10 for a poster, which was quite good money for these particular types of commercial artists. £10 at this time would be around £800 in today's money, which is pretty good. 
Once we reach the mid-20th century, there's an increase in the number of commercial artists in Britain working on ads and posters, but at the forefront of the earlier artists was the illustrator John Hassel. He developed a type of poster where the image is the central thing and the text is very much reduced, like you get on modern posters. His most famous poster is called Skegness is So Bracing, and it shows a rather jolly, rotund fisherman skipping across the beach at uh, Skegness. And it's supposed to give a sort of a joyful impression that a day trip to Skegness is healthy and a really good day out. And that's become one of the most famous British 20th century posters. Hassel Skegness image was copied and reused on posters many times. There's a later copy of it in the National Railway Museum collection by Frank Newbold that adds a figure of a child tugging on the fisherman's scarf as they both splash merrily across the beach. Newbold's other poster work is very different to this example, however, with a flatter, more graphic quality. This may be because he was working at a later period than John Hassel. Many posters in the early 20th century during Hassel's era are more cartoon-like. At this time, there was a particular British aesthetic that developed. We've got John Hassel in the, at the lead, and it was comic, and it did look like cartoon. And there was a reason for this, in that those artists were coming from a background of illustrating popular weekly magazines. They were, in effect, one of the very few groups of artists in Britain who were used to doing big, bold images with a slogan, usually a caption, for something like Punch magazine. So the early poster commissioners went to that group of artists to employ them, and that created a particular British look that was very different from what was going on in France, for example, where they tended to use images of young women to sell champagne and other products. So the railway companies were quite conservative compared to a more progressive organisation like London Underground that was really looking at continental trends in advertising and seeking to employ more unusual and modern artists in selling its services. Railway companies, their images were more comic often, but also more sort of homely as well, I think. As we discussed in our episode on Ladybird book illustrations, there were fine artists around the period of the First and Second World Wars who only took on commercial illustration jobs when they were in need of work. But there were some artists who were always happy to work on commercial projects, such as Norman Wilkinson. He was a very well-regarded marine artist, and he claimed in his biography that he created the modern pictorial poster in Britain in as early as 1906. Wilkinson's work can be found in the National Railway Museum collection and in various other collections around the UK. His paintings for posters were instantly distinguishable from his fine artwork by their bright, flat color fields and picturesque scenery. He also created posters for the British government during the World Wars and famously invented the zebra-like dazzle camouflage for ships. And there were others too, like Charles Pears, who was a marine artist, very, very highly regarded, who did railway posters and posters for London Underground. So even in the early days, there were some who would do that sort of work. But it was mainly people who were trained in commercial arts who were doing the poster work for the railway companies. The advertising industry was very male-centric around the mid-20th century, and there weren't many opportunities for women artists. We see the same gender disparity in poster commissions for railway companies around the same period. They tended to be painted by male artists. The railway companies were quite conservative in that respect. Now, when you look at London Underground, 
at least 25%, maybe more, were painted by women artists and women graphic designers. But that's not so much the case on the railway companies. There are a few exceptions. People like Doris and Anna Zinkaisen in the 1920s and 30s. Frieda Lindstrom, a generation earlier. Frieda Lindstrom went on to create children's television for the BBC. But there's not a lot of women designers represented in this group. And those designers that were used tended to be British rather than uh, continental or American. Doris Claire Zinkaisen was a multi-talented artist who designed costumes, theatrical sets, and railway posters in addition to creating fine art paintings. She also served as a nurse and war artist in the Second World War, and some of her war images can be found in the Imperial War Museum collection. Her sister Anna Zinkaisen served as a medical artist and nursing auxiliary during the Second World War and also has artworks in collections across the UK. Throughout the 20th century, poster styles shift in line with broader design trends and move away from the cartoon-like quality we discussed earlier. When you look at the early railway posters, they are a very illustrative style, a little overdrawn for the hoardings, a little too much detail. By the time you get to the 1920s, railway companies are adopting a much more sort of flat colour approach. So simplified shapes, very bright and often unreal colours. So sometimes you get fields that are sort of mauve or skies that are, are red. And these are, this is intentional to create a very bright image. And the railway posters themselves, because they were selling an idea of Britain, they tended to concentrate on destinations. Perhaps the most famous posters of this era are of seaside towns. And the posters of seaside towns would usually be looking to stress the modernity and youthfulness of that particular destination and they do this through the depiction of what is sometimes called bathing bells young women in uh, very modern bathing suits and older people wearing smart and fashionable clothes walking along the promenade of some fashionable seaside town and that became a bit of a trope for the railway poster in the 1920s and 30s and it ties in with the fashions for uh, healthy outdoor pursuits getting a suntan and weekend away at the seaside. By the 1930s, popular commercial artists emerged and some had particularly distinct and recognizable work. Names like Frank Newbold and Austin Cooper and Gregory Brown, but perhaps most of all, an artist called Tom Purvis. Now, Tom Purvis was probably the most significant commercial artist in Britain at this date. And he created a particular sort of aesthetic using very bold flat colors often depicting sort of East Coast resorts because he worked for a company called the London and Northeastern Railway. But often quite unprepossessing East Coast locations would be depicted in a blaze of sunshine with healthy, fit, well-toned young men and their sort of female partners sort of enjoying the sun. And his style is very sort of resonant of that age. It's the closest Britain got to a sort of an Art Deco aesthetic, although it has a a definite British twist to it. From the 1940s, railway poster design work was increasingly carried out by design agencies rather than commissioning artists directly, and this trend continued into the 1960s. The 1950s and 60s is also a period where poster art generally is in decline. There's much more focus on magazine advertising and eventually on uh, television. So poster art, even for companies like London Underground, goes through a bit of a dark period in the 1960s and 70s, 
with a few agencies trying to maintain the sort of standards. But by the time you get to the 1970s and 80s, British Rail posters are pretty awful. Okay. They, they, um, they tend to be only photographic, which a lot of posters were at that time. But um, the sort of graphic values of the earlier period had completely disappeared in the 1970s and 80s. So in moving away from the bright illustrations, what did the railway companies put on posters? Several companies opted for pop stars and celebrities. A lot of its posters from this era feature people from the world of music and entertainment. So groups like ABBA or Slade and a few others as well. And it was just photographs of them rather unconvincingly wearing sort of British Rail T-shirts saying, you know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, saying travel by train, or even things like keep the station tidy. Ironically, this switch to featuring celebrities on posters removed some of the glamour achieved by the picturesque paintings on older poster styles. When companies became aware of this, they tried to revive that early 20th century style. In the late 80s, there was a great series of posters by an artist called Eddie Pond, and I was a student at the time, and I remember these posters up at stations in London and, uh, and in Brighton. And they went back to the sort of aesthetic of bold, flat colours and you know, images of places to see that were really very striking indeed. And much more recently, Virgin Trains were very good at continuing that tradition. It's no surprise that railway companies brought back classic poster styles when the aesthetic is so popular that many people have reproduction posters in their homes. I thought this was a recent trend rooted in nostalgia, but it turns out that people have been doing this for decades. If you go right back to the 1910s and 1920s, some railway companies and the London Underground offered copies of its posters for sale. You could write to the publicity manager, send in a shilling or whatever it was, and get the latest poster sent to you. London Underground even had a shop at St. Paul's Station where you could go in and buy posters. And these were full-size posters from the original print runs of ones that hadn't been pasted up. And that's partly why some of these very early posters survive. And you get newspaper articles uh, in the 20s and the 30s advising young couples that the most affordable way of getting really good quality art in your new semi-detached suburban home is to write to the underground or to a railway company and buy the latest poster by one of these designers and then trim the words off and frame it up. That's funny. Trimming the words. Trimming the words off, yes, because you don't want to give the impression that you're actually putting a railway poster (laughs) on the wall. You want to give the impression it's a good poster and a, a piece of art. And of course, they are really high quality because at that time, they were printed by a process called lithography, which is a bit too sort of complex and, and, and boring to explain in detail. But essentially, you've got a print that nowadays we would call a fine art standard. Nowadays, you can still acquire railway posters from the rail companies. It's, it's a little difficult. It's much easier to buy original posters from London underground or transport for london which again continue to sell original posters of their modern campaigns what's interesting about these posters is that they aren't just beautiful advertisements enticing us to travel the rails they're a part of our collective visual culture that has helped shape the way we view the places we live personally i think one of the most striking effects of railway advertising in the 20th century is the way in which the railway companies 
created a sense of national identity for Britain and a sense of place as well. Britain was a very disparate country and railway travel opened that up in the 19th century. But in the 20th century, this proliferation of posters began to create a real sense of distinct areas, whether it was the Lake District, whether it was Scotland, whether it was sort of the mystical land of Cornwall and Devon, or the sunny side of Britain, the southeast, or the sunny south coast. These were sort of terms that were created by the railway companies. They were at the sort of cutting edge of that type of marketing, that type of place marketing, as we call it today. And they really gave a sort of coherent language to Britain to make it easier for people to make decisions about where they were going to go on on holiday and to create a sense that Britain had these very different areas, whether it was Wales or Scotland or the boating in East Anglia. And it's railway posters that help to do that. And then I guess through the posters, it helps to typify what those places look like, I guess, in people's minds. Yes, that's absolutely right. And there are a lot of books written by poster artists in the 20s and 30s, and some of them bemoan the problems of giving a unique identity to areas that were pretty much interchangeable with other resorts. Mm -hmm. And you particularly see this with seaside resorts, where the local council has stumped up half the money for the advertising with the railway company, and they want to present their particular seaside town, like Scarborough or or, uh, Filey, as different and distinguishable from all the other destinations. But actually, the resulting posters all look pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. It's all about sunshine, modernity, uh, young people, youthfulness, all of these sort of tropes of holiday advertising, which, which still exist today. Many thanks to David for providing so much interesting information on the history of these posters. We touched a little bit on the underground posters in this episode, and if you found that interesting, you'll be happy to know that we have an episode dedicated to underground posters that you can look forward to soon. Be sure to head over to artuk.org to see images from today's episode. As always, thank you for listening, and please join us again next time.